Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 this morning, Galatians chapter 4. And if you're a guest with us, we want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. There is a card in the seat back pocket in front of you called a Connect card. If you would fill that out and take it to our Welcome Center, uh, there will be somebody there to meet you and give you some information about who we are. And uh, also, those Connect cards you can also use as prayer request cards that you can put into the offering box in the back of the sanctuary, and uh, we pray for those on Sunday evenings. So make sure if you have prayer requests, continue. And not only just prayer requests, but also don't forget the praise reports. Once your prayer is answered, we want to know. We want to uh, hear about it so that we can praise the God with you on the request that... uh, has been answered, so make sure you do that. And we also want to welcome all our online audience. I want to say hey to my grandma. Will you guys welcome my grandma with me? She, she watches every week, man. So, uh, Grandma Flo, I love you. Yeah, so I have to do that once in a while because she's in, all the way in Montana. I don't get to see her. So, um, We are seven weeks into our Unshackled series, which is the study of the ver- uh, verse-by-verse study through the book of Galatians, and uh, we come to chapter for this morning, and it, I mean, this, this book is literally a masterpiece of grace. It is a masterpiece of grace for the legalist, for the person who struggles with understanding, you know, kind of how salvation works, and, you know, how are we saved? Are we saved by what we do or by what Jesus did? Uh, and really, you know, Paul does an incredible job. Uh, I don't think there's a book in the Bible that compares to uh, the book of Galatians as it relates to understanding that very thing of, of salvation, that it is by just, you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, it's by grace alone, through faith alone. You can help me out, by, through Christ alone, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he is doing a phenomenal job um, reminding us of that. And the reason why he is reminding us of that is because what? We need reminded. We need reminded. And, and you know, just as First John would remind you how much the Father loves you, and he would just over and over again about how much God loves you, we re- need to be reminded of the very thing that salvation is Jesus alone. There is nothing else. You don't add to it. Now, Paul obviously is addressing a false gospel that it's made its way into the churches in Galatia, and they have brought this Jesus plus the law gospel, which is no gospel at all because it's based on your own works and not based on Jesus Christ's works. That is a false gospel. And we have to, as Christians even, battle that mentality all the days of our life that we don't add something to what Jesus has done. When he hung on the cross, he said these words, it is finished. What he meant was, your salvation is complete in him. Nothing you can do could add to that. In fact, it's to your detriment to add to Christ. It's to your detriment. That's what Paul is telling these believers in Galatia. Now, they're not going to lose their salvation, but they're going to be miserable the rest of their lives if they try and add something to Jesus. They are going to be miserable in this pursuit of trying to live up to the bar that they could never, ever live up to. So Paul wants to remind them, hey, remember the gospel that I taught you, the one that was about grace, that God poured his love out for you through his son Jesus on the cross, that by his works 
you are made whole, that your sins are forgiven, that you are washed clean. And him on him alone, not anything you could do. And as a Christian, I know that we struggle with that because we continually ask ourselves, you know, oh man, I have to do more. I guess if I want to get closer to God, I got to do more. No, you've you, you got to trust more. You've got to rely on him more. You want, you want to become more like Jesus. Rely on Jesus more, not on yourself. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, 3, one of my favorite verses, have no confidence in the flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh. If you're trusting in your flesh, you're going to fail. You're going to be miserable. But Paul says, have your confidence in Christ. He will never fail you. Amen? So what an amazing thing. Now, um, you know, there are those, these people in Galatia were trusting in their own works. You know what God says in the Bible about your works and your best days? I mean, like the very best that you could bring to God. You know what he says about that? He says in Isaiah 64, 6, that your best works, the very best that you could muster up are like, uh, you know, polluted garments or in the New King James, King James Version, that it, it is uh, filthy rags. That literally is speaking about menstrual, about, you know, used menstrual rags. That's what it's speaking about. That's your works before the Lord. I remember the first time I told somebody that. I was on a plane talking to a guy, witnessing to him, and I said, he was telling me how great God must be. How proud God must be of him because of all the great things he does and all this stuff. And I said, oh, um, man, well, I know God's proud of me because he's proud of his son. And I'm in his son, so he's proud of me. Uh, it's, it's by grace that he's proud of me. But it sounds like you're saying that God is proud of you because of what you're doing. Well, let me just let you in on a little secret. Like, your best works are like, they're, 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 they're just, they're, they're polluted. They are they're like filthy rags before the God. I've never seen anyone be so disgusted in something that I've said to them. Now, I've said some things, but, I mean, this particular guy in this moment was so disgusted in what I said. He literally turned his body to the side in the plane, turned sideways in his seat, and would not talk to me the rest of the trip. Hey, praise God. Because he's still thinking about that to this day if he hasn't come to that conclusion. So, hey, that's what it's all about. God wants us to know that although you are filthy, he can make you clean. It's Christ who does the work. And we're thankful for that. Amen. Yes. Last week, we looked at the relationship between the law and the promises, right? And we we're saying, how does that all work? You know, does the, does, the, does the law trump the promises? Do the promises trump the law? No, actually, they are not contrary to one another. They are complementary to one another. And Paul, remember in Galatians 3.24, he told us the purpose of the law. It was never meant for salvation. It was meant to be a guardian, a tutor, a teacher to, until Christ came. It, it was meant to point us to Jesus. And he was reminding these guys, you have departed the elementary principles of the faith to, uh, you know, succumb to the elementary principles of the world. And so he reminds them that, hey, man, remember what the law's purpose is. It wasn't ever meant to bring salvation. You know, the law came, four, uh, came hundreds and hundreds of years after the promise that was given to Abraham. You know, and so he is reminding them of that, and that will continue as we make our way in to chapter 4. Now, I want to begin by looking at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 29, because he continues that thought, the idea of uh, the law being a tutor to bring us to Christ, and he says in verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according, what? To promise. It's according 
to promise. So, so we're going to pick it up right there. If you would stand with me, we're going to read a few of the verses in chapter 4, and then we will dive into it. Beginning in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. The declaration that although we were once fatherless, through your son, we have a father. Not a God, a father, an Abba that wants to be intimate with us, that desires to lead and guide and shape us. We thank you for being our Father and for providing the way for us to become your children through this thing called adoption. Would you make it known to us this morning that we are loved, we are cherished, that there was a process that took place in the courts of heaven from the foundation of the world that said, although you are not mine, I will make you mine, I will... I will allow you to be my heir with an inheritance that is unfathomable. We ask you this morning, God, to help us to see you in the right light through your Son. Come, Holy Spirit, and teach us all the things that we need to know today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul has been, for three chapters, building a case for grace, explaining the basics of the gospel, that Jesus came to satisfy everything that God would require, i.e., the law. Firstly, because it's impossible for us to fulfill it ourselves. Secondly, because it's the only means by which we can, listen, become the children of God. Contrary to popular belief, you are not born into this world a child of God. That is what Paul wants to point out to these people and the, these, these believers in Galatia, that they became children of God at a specific moment in time. When they actually came to Christ, it was at that point in time God adopted them, listen, into the family of God. It has nothing to do with heritage. It has nothing to do with the idea that you were born in a Jewish family, that you're a child of God. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are estranged from God because of our sin. And God put a, a system in place. He put a way in place pre-Christ through the law and the sacrifice to, co to, to cover our sin so that we could be in communion with the Father because the blood would cover us. For without the shedding of blood, there can be no what? Remission of sin. There can be no forgiveness. So the Father made a temporary way pointing us to Jesus, saying when Jesus comes, that temporary way will be, will be taken away and your sins will not only be covered, they will be cleansed, they will be taken away completely. As far as east is from the west, I will remember your sins no more. They are gone. And if you've ever tried to measure east to west, you know there is no way to measure it. You go as far as east as you want, you'll never hit the west. The opposite is true. Think about that for a moment. God says that's what he thinks about your sin through Christ. You're forgiven. You've been set free. 
But Paul wants to help us understand this morning that, you know, positionally, we are not children of God until we go through this legal process that happens in the heavenly courts, um, you know, called justification. When you are justified, that, 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 that adoption is applied to you. That means, and, and here's what you have to understand, positionally, as you were born into the world, you were born like a child that is born into a privileged family that is still a child under a guardian. That's what he says here. This is the th- illustration that he gives. He says, you're, you're like a child. Remember, remember, before you came to Christ, you're like a child that was under a guardian. And that, that guardian was to, to, you know, correct you, rebuke you, train you. You know, you had, you had, in fact, you had no rights as a child under the guardian. You had no rights at all. You didn't have rights to the inheritance. You couldn't boss people around. You couldn't do anything. But that day would come, he would say. That day would come when the father appointed the time. Now, what he is speaking about is uh, this specific thing uh, in, in the culture there, both Jewish and Greek culture, that uh, would, a father would appoint a specific time. It, it wouldn't be necessarily, in Jewish culture, it might be age-related, but definitely in Greek culture and Roman culture, it was not age-related. It has to do with the person. It was individual. And what would happen is when the father would decide in that appointed time that this child has now entered into manhood, whatever time frame that might be based on every child, which is a perfect illustration, uh, then the father would symbolize that, that transition, that transformation from child to, you know, son to heir by the clothing that they wore. And so what they would do is, is a Roman, you know, father would take his son, they would have the ceremony, and they would take off the child's clothes and they would put a robe on him, a toga. And now he wore around that toga. What happened was he, cha- he, he positionally already had the inheritance, but now it became real for him, and he had the authority that came with the inheritance. So what happened for that child is now the guardian was now the slave, and the child was now the master. And what he's saying is that is the reality of you and I when we come to Christ. Our relationship with the law is that it is a guardian. It, 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 it literally imprisons us. It holds us down. It, it confines us, and it defines the standard God has for us. And although we have the promise of an inheritance, we don't have the freedom of that inheritance until what? We become an adult. And that process happens through justification. When we come to Christ, we are what? Born again, the Bible says. We're born again. We now become, we become sons. We become daughters. We become not only that, but heirs to the inheritance that God has promised. All the promises in the Bible find their yes in him, as we spoke about yesterday. That's speaking of Jesus. He's the seed of promise that was spoken of in in chapter 3. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled everything for you. And by faith in him, guess what? You have all the promises in God. Has Now, has nothing to do with what you do. Has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what he did. And so be careful that you don't move away from that mentality of 100% reliance on Christ. 100% reliance upon the seed of Abraham who is Jesus, who gave his life for you. Paul 
tells us that justification transforms us from slaves to sons. From slaves to sons. That's a beautiful picture. Now, although we are slaves in Christ, Paul uses that term differently. The type of slave that he's speaking about here has no rights at all. They are owned by the master. When Paul speaks about being a slave in Christ, he's speaking about a specific kind of slave called a bondservant, which was literally a slave that had been set free that chose then to come and serve the master. And they would symbolize that by taking an, an, an awl and, an, and a hammer, and they would pierce the, the, the right ear of the, of the one who wanted to become the bondservant. That was the symbol that they were now forever belonged to that family. But boy, they were treated differently, weren't they? They freely came. That is the picture of you and I as slaves in Christ. We were transformed from slaves, literally no rights, to sons, to to daughters that come with a glorious inheritance. It was set forth. Now, notice what what, uh, um, Paul describes as the specific timing of the heavenly father. He said there was an appointed time for Christ to come. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but you can look into it for yourself. Read Daniel chapter 9. That is the appointed time. That is the reference Paul is making back to Daniel chapter 9 to the 70-week prophecy where he speaks about the coming of Christ. Now, there are many other prophecies in the Old Testament, but I believe this is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 9 where he would say that was the appointed time. Hebrews chapter 1 says that that for long ago, the father would speak through prophets and people, but there was an appointed time when his son would come, and he would speak to you and I, and he would give his life up for us. There was an appointed time, and at that appointed time, Christ surfaced perfectly, and the math on Daniel chapter 9 will blow your mind. It will purely blow your mind. You can check it out later. But uh, Paul is reminding us that there is a time frame The Father has set forth for His Son to come. And guess what? He came, just like the Father appointed that specific time. Now, I think it's interesting to note that there is also another time frame that relates to Christ. There is another time frame that that the Father has appointed. And, And there is a fullness or there is a specific number that God has appointed for Gentiles. And then... Christ will come back. Listen, listen to this in Romans chapter eleven twenty five. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Listen, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, listen, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what does that mean? I believe that what Paul is saying here is that we live in the age of grace today. It is a time frame within the the, the scheme of God's plan where he is focused on Gentiles, where he has turned his heart to Gentiles because the Jews have totally abandoned him and hardened their hearts. They have a partial hardening. It's not that they can't believe what they really want to believe. It's that they won't believe, and so they are partially hardened. But if they were to choose to believe, they could. There are Messianic Jews that are Jewish, and they believe in Christ and all of that. So it's not that God has not, not allowed them to believe. They just have chosen not to. And so God turned his sights in the sense of his master plan, not in the sense of his love or anything, but he has turned his sights towards the Gentiles. And there is a specific number of Gentiles, I believe, is what this is saying, that once that is fulfilled, the Lord will turn his eyes back to the Jews. Now, 
what do we know about Bible prophecies that relates to the nation of Israel and when God will begin to deal with Israel again? It is in what? That seven-year period known as Jacob's trouble or the tribulation period. So we know based on this and based on the rest of Scripture coinciding with one another that there is a Gentile we need to be looking for so that we can be raptured out of here so that God can turn his eyes back to the Jews and then we can uh, then after seven years come and inhabit the earth with Jesus. Amen? So be looking. Be looking for the Gentile. Are you a Gentile? No, I'm a Jew. Okay, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. What is the point? God has given you a mission. He's given you a mission to do something, to, to, to go out and make his known name, make his name known. He has given you that incredible privilege, folks, to do that. Could you imagine? I don't know how it's going to go down, but could you imagine being the one that says, hey, friend, you need to know Jesus. And that person receives the Lord, and all of a sudden you're raptured up. It's like, whoa, amazing. That would be great. But the point is this, that God works, although he is outside of time and space, he works within time and space. He's in control of time and space. There was an appointed time for Christ to come, and he came just like the Father said he would. God will do everything he says he will. You can trust him for that. Not only do we see the timing of our adoption in verses 1 through 5, but we also see the sign of our adoption in verses 6 through 7. Look there. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. How do I know that I'm a son or a daughter of Christ? How, how can I have assurance that I am adopted into the family of God? Well, what does the verse say? It says that he will give you the spirit of his son. There is evidence that you are in the family of God. Now, Paul describes it as being grafted into the tree. What is he talking about? The tree, the, the, the tree of Israel. True Israel is literally through Christ alone. It has nothing to do with nationality. Those whom God would choose, the chosen nation, would be, uh, would be literally through Christ. When, when God said that he would make Abraham a father of many nations, all those nations come together and collectively become what is known as true Israel. We are grafted in, Paul says, into the tree through Christ. It has nothing to do with how you were born or who you are or all that stuff. But when that happens, something else happens. The Father gives you a guarantee. He gives you a down payment. He gives you a promise, a promissory note, right, called the Holy Spirit. It is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. It says, in him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We can know that we are adopted by the fact that we have the Spirit within us. You know, Romans chapter 8 tells us that we can't be born again unless the Spirit of God resides in us. And, and we, we also were reminded that, you know, Matthew 6, that we can't even come to God unless we're drawn. So we have this relationship with the Holy Spirit our whole lives. We have this with 
experience of the Holy Spirit where he's drawing us to the Father and he's helping us understand that we have a Father in heaven who loves us that wants to be in relation. He wants you to be a son. He wants you to be a daughter. And when you do that, then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes within you and you are sealed and there is a down payment that's been made. It's a guarantee that God is coming back for you, that Jesus will surface from the sky one day and he will call you home. That's a promise. How do I know the Holy Spirit's in you? Well, how do I know the Holy Spirit's in you? Well, there's all kinds of evidences of that. Number one, a changed life. A changed life is evidence. I'm not just talking about an outward change. I'm not talking about obedience from the exterior. I'm talking about a changed heart where you are, have a different desires, where you, you, know, you had no desire for God, and then all of a sudden you have all kinds of desire for God. You love Him. You want to pursue Him. You want to give your life up to Him. Those kinds of things. The Bible also says that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are evidences in your life that the Holy Spirit resides in you. If, you don't, if you're not sure about that, maybe you should make sure by saying, Lord, I'm, I don't know that I see these evidences. Will you come into my life? Will you change me? I want to surrender to you. Declare you as Lord. I want this adoption that you spoke about here this morning. Notice what happens, though, when we, when we are given the Spirit. Not only do we have that sign, do we have something, to a symbol that we, we know that we belong to God, but then our relationship changes with the Father. Our relationship changes. He, no long, he goes from being Jehovah, God, to Abba, Father. Now, listen, some people think that's disrespectful. The Holy Spirit said that that's what happens. You know, what happens is you go from be, being a distant creation of God to becoming an intimate child of God. That is the picture. You, you go from calling him by his first name, Jehovah, to calling him by the intimate name, Father. Abba, Father. Now, I know there are religions that make a big deal out of or how to address God. Oh, man, that's so disrespectful to call God, Abba, Father. It's in the Bible, number one. But number two, our God, as Dan was saying earlier, is not some just, you know, uninterested being in heaven that's running and ruling and, and waiting to have his will done. He wants intimate relationship with you. He loves you, and he wants you to love him back. He wants to be in relationship with you. He's a relational God. And therefore, he demonstrates that by saying, don't call me by my first name. Call me Daddy. Call me Abba. Call me Father. What an incredible thing. What an incredible picture that we have here of this thing, that this, that this transformation that takes place as a result of justification through the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. That you go from being someone who is distant to God to be in intimate relationship with him and you get to call him daddy. What an amazing thing. Justification through faith in Christ transforms us from slaves to sons. Thus, we become heirs to the glorious inheritance. Everything that Christ has becomes yours. Everything that Christ has becomes yours. His inheritance is your inheritance because you're in him and he's in you. What an amazing truth. Secondly, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Justification transforms us from false worshipers to true worshipers. Look at verse 8. 
Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, Paul is drawing the mind of these Galatian believers back to their previous state of worship. And he's trying to help them to, to, to get this picture in their mind before they came to Christ who they were bowing down before. They were da- bowing down before nothing more than statues that were, that were fashioned and formed by man's hands. But they called them gods. God calls them idols. And he calls them not gods at all. They are dead. But here's the thing about idols, and here's the thing about things fashioned and formed by man, is that they may not be powerless. Greek mythology, understand this, is nothing more than demon worship. Greek mythology is nothing more than demon worship. When somebody is bowing the Baals and all of the different gods in the Dagon and all these different gods in the Old Testament, Moloch, that they would literally take, uh, he, was, he was a statue that would sit with, with his hands open like this. He'd be sitting like this. They'd build a fire underneath it, and then they would throw their babies on there to sacrifice to this god. And they would sit there and sizzle on, and die on, in the hands of Moloch. They were formed and fashioned by men, but they, they were not powerless. They were demonic. There's demonic associations with these statues, with these images, and all of this stuff that that makes somebody feel like they're worshiping somebody. And understand, when it comes to false worship, the reality of it is, when when it comes to demon worship, it's all about you can't do good enough, right? You have to give more. You gotta give more. When it comes to true worship, you gotta trust more. You gotta let Christ do more. You see how that works? True worship, the conversion, the transformation from false worship to true worship is literally one simple thing. It's an introduction to grace. It's an introduction to grace. You get what you don't deserve. When you're in false worship, you earn what you get. It is not a gift. It is something that you earn. But when you follow Christ, it is truly a gift. And, you know, it is amazing. But Paul wants them to remember that they were once false worshipers, but then they they had this collision with Christ. And he opened their hearts and their minds to this real worship where there was a real God, a real living God that cared and loved for them, that had intimate relationship with them. And he draws their mind back to that place. And he says, how could you go back? How could you fall back into that, the elementary principles of the world where you are enslaving yourself under the law, serving these false gods rather than living by grace and being true worshipers and serving Christ. How could you do it? Paul says, you, all, you guys observe days and months and seasons and years. What is he talking about? He's talking about Jewish festivals and feasts and, and specific times and and. Were, you know, celebrations that were set forth that were required to, you know, mandated by the law in order to satisfy the law. And he's saying, man, you guys are, you guys have fallen back into that observatory worship where you are making sure you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's and all, all of this stuff. Maybe you've done the same. 
Maybe you're observing times and days and seasons and whatnot. Maybe you have a form of godliness but deny its power. Maybe you're, you have, you're in a routine with no relationship. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, man, you guys have abandoned true worship to go back to some, some form of worship that has no power. What are you doing? He goes, man, I feel like I may be laboring in vain. Anybody ever feel like that? Man, sometimes I tell you, I feel that way. Sometimes you go like, man, Lord. And here's what Paul is saying here. You have to understand everything that went into these guys coming to know the the true and living God. Paul literally, listen, through literal blood, through literal tears, through literal sweat, brought the gospel to these people. The sacrifice that he made to bring the gospel to these people was tremendous. Literally to the point that he was left for dead outside of one of their cities. Like he was stoned literally to death. Listen, he, every place he went, he caused a stir. He was persecuted. People hated him. The Jews punished him. He's saying, man, my labor, I, I hope it was all for nothing. I, don't, I don't hope that it was all for nothing, man. I hope I didn't do it in vain. And maybe you feel the same way, but here's the amazing thing. Is that although the response of these people wasn't what he would expect or want, it didn't deter him from continuing on to the mission that he was called to. He didn't stop doing what he was supposed to be doing because he didn't see the fruit that he thought that he would see. And, you know... I can tell you that that's, that's the heart of every believer who is serving God. Because it's difficult at times. There, you, know, you're not, you, you, you give yourself up and you give yourself over and it's sacrifice. And then you know, if you get your eyes on the wrong thing, you become discouraged. You become downtrodden. You're thinking, why, why aren't, why aren't you, know, you start focusing on what everybody else isn't doing and you get yourself in a hole of complete and total despair. That's not the Lord. I think Paul in this moment would say the very thing that I'm going to say to you. Don't forget why you're doing what you're doing. Don't forget why you're doing what you're doing. Who are you serving? Who are you doing it all for? Who did you sacrifice for? Who did you bleed for? Who did you give all for? Listen, yes, the tangible people that are before you, but certainly not for them solely is an act of worship. It was a a giving over of yourself to Christ. And, and you, said, you said when you came to him, I'm crucified. I died. I no longer live. You have all rights. You do what you want through me. I'll serve you however. Does Christ know what it, what it looks like to bleed and to give and to the, to the point of death even and, and maybe not even see the fruit of what he wished he could see? Uh, you know, in that moment, of course. Did it stop him? Uh-uh. Should it stop you? No. Which brings me to another point. Listen, you were saved to serve. You were saved to serve the Lord. You were saved to to, to give yourself over to do everything that you can to make his name famous. You understand that. You you weren't saved 
to, to, to sort of be on this track to do, to elevate yourself and to get all that you can for you and all this kind of stuff. No, no, when you were saved, you were saved for his purpose, and now you're supposed to then give yourself over to him and, and be sacrificial in everything that you do. I mean, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Romans 12:1, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is, listen, your spiritual service. You're saved to serve, and in your service, it's your worship. Contrary to popular belief, when we come Sunday morning, listen, it's not about your worship. It's not about what best suits you. It's an offering to Him. You know that? You're not coming because, you know, you want to get something from God. You're coming because you want to give something to God. You want to give him your heart, your life, everything that you are. You say, Lord, I will lay my life out before you. If it costs me my blood, I'll do it. If it costs me my finances, I'll do it. If it costs me my time, I'll do it. My talents, whatever it is, God would say, hey, that's your worship. That's your worship. It is your reasonable service. Wait a second. You mean it's not about me? Nope. I hope that's not a newsflash. It is not about you. When we gather, it's about Him. It's about Him. Don't forget that. Don't make it about you. Make it about Him. Now, here's the, the, the amazing thing about that. When you make it about Him, He makes it about you. You notice that? How that works? Like, he, you make it about Him, and then He just opens the floodgates, and you feel so blessed, but you made it about Him. But He blessed your socks off because you made it about Him. When we come together and we serve our brothers and sisters and we commune with one another in Christ, man, there is an amazing thing that happens when we become selfless, when we start to serve one another in, in our time and our talent and our finances and all that we do, God begins to do something amazing. And there's a transformation that happens in your heart where you go from this form of godliness that denies its power to this incredible intimate relationship where you are a true worshiper of God. And that's where God wants to take you. And maybe you think you've arrived, but I tell you, you have not. Continue to serve more. Continue to give more. He's worth everything that you could possibly give. You know, and, and, and here's the thing. Is, you know, I don't think God is saying, well, make sure you make it balanced. Make sure you balance out your worship for me. You know, well, well I got to keep it in balance. I only got 90 minutes on Sunday morning. That's all I got the whole week, Lord. You know, I got all this other stuff to do. Who's your God? And, and don't make it about time. That's legalism. What I'm saying is there, there should be a heart within us to say, God, I'm going to give everything up. Paul had that heart. Although he questions, did I labor in vain? His heart was this. I don't care because I'm going to continue to do it because it is my worship to God. And I will continue to do it. You know, this brings me to the third and final point that justification not only uh, transforms us from slaves to sons, not only transforms us uh, from uh, false worshipers to true worshipers, but it also transforms us from being selfish to selfless. And Paul uses his own life and the life of these believers in the moment they, that they came to Christ as an example. Look at verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. 
you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And, all, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is also good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul understood the bondage of the law. He was a master in it. He was raised in it. He, was, he, he excelled in it. Like there was nobody like Paul as it related to the law. Like he was one of those guys, he was one of those pillars, uh, you know, back in the day when before he came to Christ that was so zealous for the law that he would literally persecute the church. Like he, he was thinking he was doing God's work and of course everyone else was like, by all means, Paul, go for it, do it. This guy lived his life with everything he had for the law, everything he had. Then he came to Christ. Then he came to Christ, and he had this collision with grace. And he, and he spent 14 years understanding how grace works and, the, and, you know, what happened when Christ died and what that did to the law and all of this. And he was taught for three years specifically by Jesus, by Jesus himself through revelation. And and now he, he's saying, listen, I know what it looks like to be under the bondage. I know what it looks like now to be under grace. I, you know, I, I'm freed, and I want you to be freed. I'm freed from requirement, but I am saved for service. And so he, he reminds them the whole purpose of why, why we're saved. He said, man, you should care about others just like you did when you first believed. He said, remember when I came to you and I had this, this, this eye problem, this ailment? You know, many people believe it's an eye problem because he says that they would have literally given their own eye to him. Whatever the ailment might have been, whatever it is, he had something that he thought was going to be a hindrance to this body that, that the enemy was going to use to distance people away from him, and yet God used it to draw them in closer. That's how God uses your ailments, by the way. You know, when, when Moses said, man, I don't know if I can stand before people and speak. Are you kidding me? No, no, you're the exact person I want. The stutterer, the person that doesn't, that, that can't take the glory for themselves. You're the exact person I want. He would tell Paul in this moment, listen, don't let your ailment stop you from doing what you're called to do, from serving me, from worshiping me through this manner. I've called you, now go do it but I don't know enough. Isn't that what we say? But he sent you. I don't know if I can do that, but he sent you. He sent Paul, and he knew that Paul would have this thing, whatever it is. But what I want you to see is that their heart for him in the moment. They didn't say, oh, man, I'm not going to look at you, man. 
you got ailments. You, you can clear, you know, in this day and age, they probably would have thought he was being cursed by God. And yet God was using him. He, he, they helped, he helped them understand grace. He helped them understand who the Lord really is to the point that they, be, they went from being selfish to selfless. They literally would give their own lives up for him. They loved him that much, and he loved them that much. Listen, I don't know about you, but when I'm sick, I don't, I don't particularly want to preach the gospel. I want to lay in bed and watch TV and drink soup, right? And uh, Paul, you know, would say, listen, I'm going to give my life up. I don't have enough time to, to uh, you know, serve and, and worship God, so even in my sickness, I'll do it. May that be our heart, man. I mean, to, to really go from being selfish to say, oh, I'm going to, okay, don't take this out of context. I'm sick. I got to go to church. No, I don't want you to get everybody else sick. But what I'm saying is, is there, sometimes we pamper ourselves a little too much. We, that, that's being selfish. There's a selfishness within us. But when we come to Christ, uh, we, we, we then become selfless. Literally, we'll do anything for anybody in any condition because Christ did all for me, right? That's where Paul is. And they recognized that, and they became like that to that point. And then he says, what happened to your blessedness? What, what happened to that spirit of love that when you first believed that you were willing to give your own eyes for me, what happened? Oh, you started getting knowledgeable. Some Judaizers came in and started to speak on a different level with you, and now you are, you know, following this God intellectually rather than spiritually. That's what happened. That can happen to you. Be careful. The intellectual pursuit of God will draw you away from the presence of God. Be careful. Not, not that we don't be intellectual about the Bible, and about what we believe in all this kind of stuff, but if you're pursuing knowledge, Paul, Paul says knowledge puffs up and what does pride do? It draws us away from the Lord. Be careful about that. You know, study to show yourself approved. Uh, you know, know the Bible. Do all that you can, you know, to, to know the Lord, but remain humble. Remain humble. Paul would say, man, remember your blessedness. Remember the transformation that happened where you were, were, were willing to give yourself up for me. Would you now make me your enemy? Really? You're believing them over me? There's a principle in this. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, which was written by Paul again. And it says this, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That phrase, believes all things, that would literally mean that you would have faith in your brother or your sister when you haven't heard from them directly, but there's something going on, that you would believe the best of them. Paul wasn't there when these Judaizers came in and they began to attack him personally. What happened? They, they were swayed immediately. They began to think the worst of Paul in this moment. But the principle is to think the best of one another, right? Until proven otherwise, right? Don't you dare judge somebody else until you've talked to them directly. And by the way, first thing and foremost, if someone comes up to you and tells you something, you better rebuke them for gossiping. You better rebuke them for, for gossiping about somebody else and, and, and tainting your image, your mind of their image, in, you know, their image in your mind. Okay? Be careful about that, man. Don't, don't gossip. Don't gossip. Um, but, but Paul would say, believe. 
all things. Just believe the best. Paul is, yes, rebuking these guys, but he's also believing in them. If he didn't believe in them, he wouldn't be writing this letter. He wouldn't be saying, oh, man, I'm done with these guys. I'm going to wash my hands of them. No, it's not the case. He believed in them. Are you believing in your brother and sister? Talk to them first. Paul said, are you going to make me your enemy from their word? You know what they're doing, right? They're, they're, they're simply wooing you. They're, 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 they're deceiving you. They're, they're making you feel so welcome and so, you know, built up and all of this stuff. But you know why they're doing that? They're, they're literally trying to estrange you from me, thus from Christ. You understand? Paul is saying, if you're estranged from me, you're estranged from Christ because I'm following Christ. They are not. If you want to be estranged from Christ, then believe them. And therefore, I'm your enemy, but, but don't forget, so is Christ, your enemy. They're building you up for a specific purpose. That is the deceit of the enemy, folks. He, 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 he will, listen, don't think that the only thing the enemy can do in your life is bad. Because sometimes he, he is able to, you know, he's, he's a powerful being. You know, and he can maybe even bless you. Oh, dangling carrot. Look, at you can make all this money over here and all this kind of stuff, but yet you have to forsake your family, your friends, your Lord, everything for it. But boy, are you blessed. Right? It's deceit. These Judaizers were deceiving these believers into thinking that they were something they were not. Were they loved by them? No. No, it was an agenda. There are people that make their way in the church that have an agenda. And their agenda is not to stir up godliness, stir up good works. Their agenda is to stir up dissension, to stir up hate. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. Beware of them. That's what these Judaizers are. And, you know, many have come into churches and stirred the people to the point where they created such a division that the church collapses. Man, can we not be a little bit more mature than that? in our walk with the Lord, that we would know when a deceiver comes in, that we would know the truth so well that we couldn't be deceived. You know, and, and that calls you to a continual pursuit of knowing and loving God. It call, you know, you, you, you have not arrived. You might know the gospel backwards and forwards, but I promise you don't, you don't know it in here that way. Man, the depth of the gospel is unbelievable. The more I meditate on it, the more I don't understand it. I don't get it, Lord. Why would you do this? I know it's because you love me, but I don't get your love. Right? And the more you meditate on that, the more you, 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 know, you allow that to sink in, the more you're just like, oh, Lord, the humbler you become. Because you know your word, but you see your worth from his eyes. Man, he thinks you're worth something, I'll tell you. Meditate on that. And then love him back that way. Paul says, man, I am anguishing over you like childbirth until you are formed to Christ. My heart, this is the pastor in Paul. The pastor in Paul would say, I, I am agonizing over where you are spiritually because I see the, the deception that's happened in your life and I want you so badly to become like Jesus, but you are going the direct opposite way. You are being deformed rather than conformed. And it, and it is burdening my heart. I am perplexed. My mind is blown. I can't believe it. That you would actually, because he spent time with these people, he knew that they had a good understanding. 
and yet they were swayed. They stopped pursuing the Lord in grace. They stopped pursuing him in a loving relationship. And so Paul shows his pastor's heart here, and he says, man, I want to see you formed into the image of Christ. I wish I could be there with you right now, that I would change my tone with you. What he's saying is, is I can't read you. I don't know how you're receiving this. I don't know if you're saying, ah, whatever, or if you're really saying, hey, you're right, Paul. I'm sorry. If there's a genuine repentance in your heart and you're turning back to the, to the Lord and, you know, serving Him by grace through faith in Christ, I can't see it, but I wish I could. I wish I could be there. This is the heart of somebody who has a genuine love for these people. He genuinely wants to be them. And if, listen, if he could have dropped everything in that moment, I don't know what he's doing right here, but if he could have dropped everything in that moment, he would have by the, by, the, by the way that he writes this. I would have been there if I could have. But I have to remain in this state of perplexion, but I will never give up on you. That is the heart of a pastor, of a father, a spiritual father, you know, a, a Christian who's a mentor, whatever it is, that is loving on somebody and you understand you know, we are fallen people, and we're, we have lots of shortcomings, but we pursue and, and continue to, you know, try and build up and encourage and exhort to become more like Jesus. That's Paul's heart for these people. Listen, the reality of your justification, the, the, the results of it are transformation from slave to son, from false worshiper to true worshiper, from selfish to selfless. You have to ask yourself this morning, is that transformation still taking place or am I backsliding in one of these areas? Am I trying to reach God like a slave rather than a son? Have I fallen back into some sort of an um, unhealthy, unreal worship of God that has no power and no relationship? It's all about duty. Am I serving myself or am I serving other people? That is the reality of what Paul says here when it comes to justification. You were justified. Christ died for you to transform you. And your life should be a perpetual transformation. And if it's not, guess what? Focus on it. Start to, Paul said this, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Ask yourself this morning, Lord, am I growing or am I backsliding? Am I really yours or am I really not? I promise you, he will answer you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the goodness of who you are, God, that you are so faithful as a father and that you would reveal the truth to us in these moments. Lord, just as Paul would reveal to these believers in Galatia that you, Father, love them, that you want relationship with them, but ultimately has to come through Christ and Christ alone. It can't come any other way. And I ask you this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to speak into our hearts today. Lord, we know, again, our salvation has nothing to do with what we do. doesn't matter how much we fail. At the end of the day, Christ paid the price. He died for us. His blood covers us. We are justified, literally, the legal process in which we are made righteous before you. It was nothing we did to get there. And of course, the evidence of that justification is our changed life, the Holy Spirit residing in us, the fruit of the Spirit.
And Paul was speaking to believers in this place, so we speak to believers here even right now, Lord, that maybe we're not living up to the crucified Christ and to allowing His blood to be the primary focus of our lives and His sacrifice. But we are now turning our eyes back to ourselves and what we do. We've become self-serving instead of serving You, Lord. And we ask you this morning, God, if we are slaves in some way and not sons, if we are false worshipers, not true worshipers, even as believers, that you would convict our heart, that you would draw us back to that place where we would surrender once again, Lord, say, man, forgive me, Lord. I can't believe that I fell for it. I want to be back in right relationship with you, Lord. Fill me with your spirit once again, Lord. Draw me close and help me to live in grace. And Father, for anyone here this morning that, that is maybe being convicted that they aren't in right relationship with you, there is a real judgment that will take place for those that are estranged from you. That's why you pursue us like crazy. That's why your love is fierce, because there is a consequence to rejecting the gospel. And that is eternal separation for you. You don't desire that. You don't send the people to hell. They choose to go there. Maybe this morning someone here Someone online, someone listening later is saying, man, that's me. I want to be right with God. Well, it's a sincere prayer, a simple prayer that is a prayer of total surrender to God. And it's something like this, Father, I come in Jesus' name, and I ask you to cleanse me of my sin. I've failed you, but I'm turning my life over to you now, believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want your grace to flow down on me, Lord. I'm, try, I'm tired of failing to try and reach you through my own works. But today, I want to receive the grace that you've given in your son, Jesus. And I want to receive him as my Lord. And so I confess him today as Lord and Savior of my life in sincerity. And Lord, we know that a prayer like that transforms a life. The Spirit comes in and we are made new. So, God, we want to give you the, the, the last few minutes of this time to just, by your Spirit, stir us, draw us close to you, Lord, that we would uh, just follow your heart, Lord, wherever you would lead us this morning, to the altar or whatever it might be, Lord, to your throne room, right, where, right in our own seats, that we would just turn our hearts to you, we pray. In Jesus Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.